Welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. I'm Nicole. I am your MC for today's episode. And of course, I am joined by the lovely Rebecca and Journey. This week, we will be discussing Nelson Hart, which Journey will gladly tell us about. And then Rebecca is actually going to educate us on Mr. Big Technique, which is a Canadian technique, and how it played an instrumental role in this case. Shockingly, this is another ep- Wow. That was like, whatever. Okay. Shockingly, this is another episode where we have no listener's discretion. But kind of like half a listener's discretion, the case is around two young girls dying. Um, but we don't go into detail about their deaths. So if you can deal with the fact that they were young, then you're fine. Anyways, on that note, Journey, would you like to tell us about Nelson Hart and why he's infamous in Canada? Yes, I would. I'm actually super excited to tell you guys about him because I remember learning about his case in some of our classes and somehow I never actually looked into his crimes until now, but I've used him as examples for papers, so I'm not really sure how that works out. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, uh, so there's not actually that much known about him before his crime, so the background section that I have is lacking, but here we go. So, Nelson Hart was born in 1968, and he was raised in Gander, Newfoundland, but he lived in Grand Falls, Windsor, Newfoundland, with his wife, Jennifer, and their two daughters. And their family actually experienced quite a few financial issues, and they were often being visited by a social worker. And there was even talk about their children being taken away from them, which I can imagine being super scary as a parent. And then in June 2002... The Hart family was homeless again, but by midsummer they had found an apartment and were being visited regularly by a different social worker. And so it's super important to note right now that neither social worker thought that Hart was a threat to his children. Um, so that's kind of interesting. And then on August 4th, 2002, Nelson Hart and his three-year-old twin daughters, Krista and Karen, went to Little Harbor Beach just outside of Gander, and somehow the two girls ended up in the water, and Hart freaked out because he can't swim, so he went to get his wife back in Gander, and his first version of the story was that Krista fell into the water first, and then when Hart went to go get his wife, he didn't bring Karen with him. He supposedly, in quotations, forgot about her. And then when he and Jennifer came back, they couldn't find Karen either. And so then Hart left his wife Jennifer looking for Karen, and he went to the nearest gas station to call for help. And first responders arrived, and they were able to find both girls in the water. And Krista was unconscious but alive. And unfortunately, Karen was pronounced deceased on scene. And then Krista was taken off life support the next day and passed away. And so uh, Nelson Hart was interviewed by the Gander RCMP Major Crime Unit for one hour on the night of August 4th, 2002. And this interview was videotaped, but nothing came from it, like, uh, confession-wise. And so during this interview, he said that he drove to the park, removed the girls from the car, 
and they ran onto the dock, and then Krista fell into the water, and Hart said that he panicked because he couldn't swim, so he drove to get his wife, who apparently couldn't swim either. And obviously, the police asked him why he didn't just call for help on either of the cell phones they found in his car. And he said that his cell phone didn't have minutes on it, and the other one didn't belong to him. Why did he... Okay, it's obviously... He's got to be like a drug dealer or something. It's a burner phone. Like, why do you have two phones? Right, and why do you have a phone that doesn't belong to you? Well, and I was going to say, and how do you not have minutes? But this is the... It was early 2000s. Yeah. 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 So, and then the officers straight up asked him if he killed his daughters and he denied it. And the police officers didn't believe him. And so they were convinced that he lied to them. So they interviewed Hart again on September 12, 2002. And this interview lasted eight hours. And the police told him that he was guilty and tried to get him to confess, but he didn't. And on the Can Lee document that I found, it said that this interview involved five to six police officers and was fairly intense. So I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't a confession. And in both of these interviews, Hart declined counsel. So he never asked for a lawyer in any of his interrogations or interviews. And just to clarify for people that may not know what Can Lee is, it is basically a database that has all of Canadian cases in it. Yes, thank you. Um, And then on September 30th, 2002, uh, Hart called the police and requested to meet with Corporal Trainer, but not at the police station. So Corporal Trainer drove to Hart's mother's house where he was living and picked him up and they talked in the police vehicle. And then Corporal Trainer again advised him of his right to counsel and he again declined. And this meeting was also audio taped. So they were very good about like recording what he was saying. And in this meeting, Hart told Corporal Trainer basically the same information that he told him on August 4th with some changes. And so he said that he took Krista out of her car seat first, and then he walked around to the other side of the car and took Karen out of her seat. He then said that he had a mini mall seizure, which is also known as an absence seizure, where the individual blanks out or stares into space for usually no longer than 15 seconds. And so these types of seizures are often caused by a period of hyperventilation in an individual with epilepsy, and they can happen just randomly. Um, does he have epilepsy? He does. We find oh, okay. Later. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> okay. was really concerned because I was like, um, that's super fishy, but then I found out that he did have epilepsy. I'm like, okay. This okay. And so when he came to... He said that he was not himself, but he could see Krista in the water, and he wasn't sure how she had gotten in there. He also said that his only thought was to go get his wife, and that he only lied about it because he didn't want to lose his driver's license. And so, like I said, he does suffer from epilepsy, and his license has actually been revoked a few times as a result of his epilepsy. And so, this interview ended after an hour. And then Corporal Trainer dropped him off at his mother's house again. And so after this interview, the investigation continued and Hart was interviewed again in December. But no charges had been laid in the death uh, to his daughters yet. And the police were convinced of his guilt, but had no evidence to charge him with. So they decided to initiate an undercover operation with Hart in regards to what he said in his September 30th interview. 
And so this undercover operation is a Mr. Big operation that involved getting Hart involved with a trucking business that was made up of undercover agents. And so Rebecca's going to tell us a bit more about what a Mr. Big Sting is, but I'm going to tell you more specifically what happened with Hart. And so Mr. Hart's Mr. Big Sting involved him becoming involved in a trucking business that was run by undercover agents in February of 2005, so roughly three years after his daughters had died. And the main undercover agent was called G in the Canley document that I found. And he gave Hart a business card for the trucking business that was looking for workers in Newfoundland. And then eventually Hart agreed to work for G and did some odd jobs that involved driving trucks from one location to another in Newfoundland. And then everyone involved in this trucking business was an undercover agent. And as like the sting in quotations went on, people involved spread from Newfoundland to actually Vancouver. So this really? was like a, yeah, it was a Canada wide operation. And so, Holy at, crap. yeah. And as it continued, Hart met more and more people who he believed to be higher up in the chain of command. And then he was introduced to criminal activity that included dealing fake credit cards, uh, forging passports, fake casino ship chips. And so then he was told that if he wanted to continue working with them, he would have to be involved in more serious crimes. And so then he was involved in a stage break and enter, and he was introduced to someone undercover as a biker in another criminal organization to show that the people he was working for had connections outside of Canada with some scary people. Were these bikers also undercover? Yeah, everyone he met oh was undercover. This is a huge operation. Yeah. <laughs> it was so massive, yeah. Do you think it happened in 2005, like three years later, because they had to plan this whole elaborate thing? Probably. Because this is a lot. To have undercover people all the way across Canada. Yeah. Interesting. It was a very massive, and it took place in only a short amount of time, too. And so as the situations that he was placed in increased in danger, the pay also increased. And so whenever he completed a scenario, he was told that he was doing good work. And that was kind of a way to build trust between him and the people he was working with. He got a gold star. He got a exactly. gold star sticker. <laughs> yeah, thank you for taking these drugs from one place to another. Um, and then in May and June of 2005, Hart finally made contact with the big boss for Mr. Big. And Hart was told that as long as he was loyal the boss would take care of his needs and that if he lied to him, the boss would find out the truth and there would be consequences. And so did he actually go by Mr. Big? Like, was that his gangster name that he had Hart call him? All of my sources just called him the boss. That's the same. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Nothing better. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if that was his name or if it was something else, but they all had like special names. Yeah. And so then in May, there was a meeting with the boss in Vancouver, but Hart wasn't allowed to talk with the boss because he wasn't trusted yet. And then eventually Hart decided that he wanted to move up the ladder. And to do that, he needed to meet the boss and kind of be vetted by him. And so then when he met the boss, he was told that there was something in his past that the boss wanted cleared up. And that was the death of his daughters. And so then... 
On June 9th, 2005, Hart met the boss in a hotel room and gave him a detailed admission of how and why he drowned his daughters. And so this confession was video and audio taped. And in order to get him to tell them more, the boss didn't accept the explanation that he had a seizure and kept telling him, quote, don't lie to me, don't lie to me, end quote. And so as a result, he did tell the boss that he pushed both of his children off the wharf and then left the scene to, quote, get help, end quote. And this is awful. His motivation for killing his daughters was that he was scared that they were going to get taken away to live with his brother. What? So to, like, save them or whatever, he decided to Why kill them. Why would they get taken away to live with his brother in the first place? Because they were homeless and they had no money, so they couldn't provide a quality of life. Okay, that does make sense. Never mind. Yeah. I retract my question. <laughs> I missed the homeless part, too. So they, when he went to go get his wife, even though he couldn't swim, were they not around anyone else? Like, wouldn't he have passed someone on his way to get his wife? Yep. Yeah, he drove past, like, gas stations, the hospital, like, a whole bunch of different places. And he said, no, I just wanted to get my wife, even though it would have been... Yeah smarter but he killed them so he didn't really want to save them you know that's just the flaw in the story you got to do a little harder than that exactly and so luckily they did have this conversation video and audio tape so they had a recording of him like confessing and then two days later on june 11th uh they took Hart to where it actually happened so that he could reenact it for them and so they have video and audio of him telling them where he had parked and what he had done. He demonstrated pushing the daughters in on G. He's like, this is how I nudged them in or whatever. And then I'm not really sure if he knew he was being videotaped. Nowhere said anything about that, but I can't imagine that he did know. And then the sting operation ended on June 13th, 2005, and Hart was arrested the same day for two counts of first-degree murder. I can't even imagine just, like, going up to my boss and being like, hey, like, I actually killed my two daughters. This is exactly how I did it. Yeah. Like, I couldn't understand the, the cognitive stress you'd have to be under over, like, oops, over your job or, you well, know what that, I mean? <laughs> yeah, and that's the whole thing was he finally had, uh, like, friends who he felt he could trust And he, like, was making money finally. And so they had built this huge relationship. He's like, these guys are my brothers. Like, I love you guys so much. Uh, Like, if if telling you this keeps me in this organization, then I'm going to tell you this. It's sad how much of a delusion the police create for these people to try to elicit confessions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, crazy. And so... His trial began on February 27th, 2007, so like two years after he had been arrested. And during the trial, Hart said that he was lying when he gave the confession to the boss because he felt scared and trapped and didn't want to lose the money he was making after being poor for so long. But he had told G in April 2005 that he had planned and killed his daughters. Um, the only thing was that it wasn't recorded, so no one could prove 
that he said it, so the judge left it up to the jury to decide whether or not he actually said that. Um, and then his trial finished one month and one day after it began on March 28, 2007, and he was found guilty on both counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no option of parole for 25 years. Did anything happen to his wife? Like, was she involved in any way, or was she completely unaware? No, that's actually what I'm going to talk about next. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah, so I just have some information that I thought was interesting, but I wasn't really sure how to, like, integrate into a story. Um, But I kind of already mentioned the first point, which is, like, at the end of the operation, there was such a relationship built up between Hart and those in the undercover operation And he fully believed that he was involved in a criminal organization. And when he was arrested, he actually called one of the agents for help. That's how much, yeah, that's how much trust they had. And then second, Jennifer, his wife, was also involved in this operation. And so she was befriended by the undercover girlfriends of the men that Hart met. And so like by involving her as well, it helped solidify the relationship between Hart and G and the other men he worked with. And she didn't know that it was a sting, but by creating that relationship between their wives, it helped trust them pretty much. Do we have any, oh, yikes. Do we, (laughs) do we have any information? Like, do we know if she at any point said anything about her own involvement or was she genuinely just like a pawn? in like a chess game where they're looking for his confession yeah i couldn't find anything that said that she was involved with it at all so was she charged with anything like with any of the criminal activities she took part in not that i know of okay but it seems weird that she didn't know of this plan because he did plan it out but yeah nothing i could find specified if she was involved or not And then the third point that I had was that the people undercover didn't know much about the death of his daughters other than they drowned and he was a suspect in their death. So they were kept fairly clueless. So they didn't really know what he was going to tell them. That's interesting. I would have thought they'd know more being undercover working with the person, but I guess it also kind of makes sense to keep them out of the loop to try to make their interactions as sincere as possible. Yeah, and that way they don't accidentally be like, so, hey, you killed your daughters? And then he's like, wait a second. (laughs) You shouldn't know that. And then, so like I said, this operation was, like, Canada-wide. And so Hart first met Mr. Big in Vancouver, and then they partied in Montreal, and then they went back to Newfoundland. And so cost was not a factor. And do you guys know how much it cost to run this undercover operation for five months? How much? $400,000. Oh. Yeah, it was over $400,000 to do this undercover operation from February to June of 2005. Let me guess. Um, taxpayer money? Most definitely. <laughs> Very nice. Okay. <laughs> That's so yeah. not good. That's right? so not good. I was like, okay, over $400,000. Like, that's a lot of money, but... If this took place over a couple of years, I could get it. But then I was like, no, it's five months. That's insane. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that is all that I have for you guys. Well, thank you. I thought, okay, I don't know. Hopefully you 
maybe know more about it, Rebecca, but what was the case we learned in class where it was the same kind of thing? It was a father and two daughters, but it was by a pond instead, and one of the girls, like, hit her head on the bricks. Was that a thing or no? I'm not positive if that's a thing, but there was a similar case um, of Carissa Boudreaux, which was in Nova Scotia, and she was involved... Well, she was a suspect that was... uh, went gone after by mr big operation and she uh she i can't remember how she killed her daughter but she disposed of her body in a lake uh and the reason for doing so was because she thought her daughter was trying to get with her boyfriend like the mom's boyfriend (laughs) no no yeah that was actually in nova scotia and that was uh one of the more recent mr big operations i remember learning about that one yeah Okay, maybe I'm thinking of something else then, because I honestly thought it was the heart case where the excuse was that the daughter tripped and hit her head, and then she, like, fell into the pond, and then she drowned that way. But really, the father drowned the kids. Maybe it's a TV show? I don't know. (laughs) Anyways, besides the point, speaking of Mr. Big, um, Rebecca, do you want to tell us about kind of the science behind it and how it came to be in Canada? I would love to. So, as you first just mentioned, uh, Mr. Big is Canadian. It was developed in Canada, and it's actually pretty uniquely Canadian because Canada's the only country that explicitly permits the use of its evidence uh, gathered through the use of the technique in court. So there's no other country that specifically says, like, these kind of undercover questionable operations are admissible in courts. Um, So... Uh, just before I continue with like the what it is and some of like the problems with it and stuff, I just wanted to preface our discussion uh, by saying that there is a significant lack of empirical research right now regarding the technique. Uh, and this is partially because the RCMP has been keeping a lot of the specific details under wrap because they don't want the public to know about the technique and it getting wide publication because obviously that could uh, affect the usefulness of it in the future if everybody knows of it. So with that being said, I'm going to do my best to explain exactly what it is, uh, some of the issues surrounding it, and as well as some of the current laws that are surrounding its use. Um, And would also like to thank two of our professors, who are Dr. Stinson and Dr. Patry, because they have done significant research on Mr. Big, and they have actually conducted some of the very limited research we have on it. Um, And we've also learned a lot through their classes about the technique. (laughs) So to get started... Put simply, the Mr. Big technique is an undercover interrogation technique that's used to elicit confessions from uncooperative suspects. Usually, Mr. Big is used as like a last resort, and it's done when there's little to no other evidence against the suspect, um, and the suspect's already been interrogated in a traditional custodial setting, but they have failed to confess or give uh, significant evidence to the police that they can use to charge them. So... Uh, Mr. Big is reserved for suspects of major crime, so it's not really used for, like, break and enter and that kind of thing. It's mostly for homicide investigations. There are a few specific steps to a Mr. Big operation. The first being that the um, officers need to profile the suspect. Uh, So this happens before they meet the suspect because they obviously need to know a little bit about them so that they can kind of make sure that the suspect actually wants to befriend them or get to know them. Uh, So once this happens, the operation begins with an undercover officer um, 
portraying just a stranger who isn't an officer. Um, and they go and engage with the suspect to try to build up a rapport, make them trust them, uh, become friends. And eventually, as Journey had mentioned, get them involved in some sort of organization. So um, at some point when in the undercover officer and suspect's friendship, uh, when they start getting involved in the crime activities, they start with smaller menial tasks, like counting smaller sums of cash. And as the officers say they the undercover officers say that they trust the suspect more. Uh, they allow them to count larger sums of cash, cash sorry, uh, and then eventually start sending them on more serious organization work, such as sending them on like deliveries and pickups and such of whatever goods that they claim they're trading, as well as sending them on expense-paid trips and... As Journey had said, this happened in Hart's case, and it was also very notable that this happened in another Nova Scotian case that was of John Buckley, who had killed his mother. But I'll get back to that case briefly a little later because it just explains the technique pretty well. So as the suspect is working in the organization and working up the ranks a little bit, um, they're offered compensation for all the work they're doing. So it's basically like all the work they're doing for this fake organization they think is real, they are getting genuine compensation as if it's a real job. Uh, this compensation could be in money, uh, but it could also be in other monetary goods, such as like expensive clothing, cars, expense tra uh, paid trips, as we just said. Um, and all of this just helps the uh, investigation build up like believability and make the suspect trust all the undercover officers. After doing more menial tasks for them, uh, they're eventually offered a higher position in the organization uh, with the preface that the organization now trusts them enough to do some more work for them and they'll offer, offer even more compensation for the higher work that they'll do. But before they can be accepted as a full-fledged member of the organization, they have to go through an interview with their big boss, who's Mr. Big, but they're not always called Mr. Big. Um, just to make sure that they're truly up for the job. So when they meet Mr. Big, um, he or she uh, confronts the suspect about the crime that's being investigated, and they say that uh, they have connections with the police, and they know that they're under suspicion for this crime, and that they need to fully confess to the crime in question, one, so that Mr. Big can make all of the problems disappear because he has police connections and he can erase the suspicion, uh, but also because sometimes the suspect is told that confessing to this crime is also going to act as a form of insurance so that if the suspect ever betrays the organization, they have something to use against them. Uh, so that obviously would build up a bit of fear in the suspect if they didn't confess to anything. Um, so as... You know by now, Mr. Big, just like everyone else in the organization, is an undercover officer. And as per Canadian law, the confession is audio or videotaped. Uh, it's not known to the suspect that it's being videotaped, so it's surreptitious. Um, but this confession that's recorded is a crucial piece of evidence in the case against the suspect, and also pretty much the only evidence against the suspect besides suspicion. So... In general, that's the process in the steps of Mr. Big and how it's used to elicit the confession. Um, as I had mentioned earlier, there's a very little empirical research on the topic, 
Um, and even the frequency to which it's used is uncertain because, as I had said again, the RCMP is trying to keep the technique a little under wraps. Um, but that being said, the RCMP has indicated that prior to 2004, the Mr. Big technique was used at least 350 times. And oh. although it hasn't been specified how much it's been used after 2004, there's been no indication that they've tried to reduce the use of it anymore. So we can only assume that they're still using it just as frequently. They also specified um, with the statistic of 350 times before 2004 that um, it's been successful in eliciting a confession about 75% of the time and it has resulted in a conviction about 95% of the time. So essentially, if you confess to Mr. Big, you're almost guaranteed to be convicted. But how can they convict you if that's the only hard evidence against you in most cases? I think it's the situation of like, Often, because obviously the person uh, hasn't pled guilty, they have to go to a either a jury or a bench trial, but usually people ask for a jury trial. Um, and confessions, just like eyewitness identification testimony, is like really powerful. So even if they don't really have much else, if they have someone saying, yeah, I committed this crime, this is what I did, this is how I did it, uh, the jury is pretty likely to believe that they actually did commit what they said they did. We have a tendency to want to believe people. <laughs> Although this resulted in a confession 75% of the time, we don't know how many of those were false. Because if they're in prison right now, not getting help to get out, how do we truly know? Um, we do know that they do elicit false confessions because, as we've learned in previous research, um, and actually you can go back and listen to episode 9 where we talk about false confessions if you wanted to learn more about the factors. Um, there are multiple factors involved in false confession that are almost always involved in a Mr. Big technique. So it's very likely that a lot of the 75% weren't true confessions. So I just wanted to go a little bit into the major factors in the Mr. Big technique that influence the false confession. Uh, the first of this would really apply to uh, Hart because it's the fact that they're offered incentives for doing the work. Hart, as you had said, had been homeless before, didn't have a lot of money. So the incentives that he was being offered in all of this money obviously was a huge benefit to this and obviously if this is the only way he knows to make money he's gonna do what he can to continue doing so um so to provide another example besides heart just to demonstrate that this uh is common heart wasn't the only expensive mr pig operation i briefly mentioned earlier that there was someone named john buckley he was accused of murdering his mother but they had no evidence against him uh, so they conducted Mr. Big against him, and his operation uh, was about seven months long. He was given an hourly wage while working with them for of $20 an hour. In uh, the $20 an hour wage amassed to $15,000, and in addition, he received the equivalent of about another $16,000 in expense-paid trips for the organization, clothing, meals, and drinks. Well, Imagine... They being that like 25 percent though that just gets all this stuff and didn't actually commit a crime and doesn't confess 
That'd be a yeah, sweet, like, Do you think like, they take it back? Do you think the police are like, mm, actually, this was all just a ruse. Can we have our money back? I feel like they would. But I feel you can't take away an, a trip that you already went on. You know, at least it's true. It's a, That's true. That's true. Everything else, I'm sure. I, I don't know why they'd take clothes and meals and drinks. You can't take that. It would just be the money, I guess. Yeah. And maybe they don't even take it. They're just like, okay, well, we just messed up in not getting a confession, so here's your <laughs> gift. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Um, so, uh, John Buckley's investigation was a little bit longer than Hart's. Uh, it was a seven-month operation, and this one cost the RCMP $300,000. So, still way more than I would like it to cost for that amount of time. <laughs> So uh, the second factor that increases the risk of false confession uh, during the Mr. Big technique is how threatened the suspect is feeling by the organization. So again, Hart had briefly mentioned that he was a little fearful of the people in the organization and what he would do if he didn't confess. Um, and I want to go into another very brief example. This was a case in the 1990s of Mr. Big being used. It was against a man named Robert Bonasteel. Um, at some point during the sting against this man, they involved him in trying to elicit a confession from someone else who was involved in the organization, who wasn't confessing to a crime. What Bonasteel didn't know was the person that they were saying they needed a confession from was also an undercover cop. Uh, so this undercover officer went by the name Tony, and they asked Bonasteel if he would try to elicit the confession from Tony. Uh, he tried, and he was unsuccessful, and what happened then was Tony was taken into another room from which Bonasteel could just hear him being severely beaten and was told that this is what happens when someone doesn't confess. Uh, so this example demonstrates that there's an indirect threat to the suspect if they don't confess, so even if they don't have anything to genuinely confess to, there's a likelihood that they'll do it anyways because they don't know how to get out of this threatening situation because they're in an organized crime group. Which is scary. <laughs> was he actually being beaten up? No, it was all acting, but it was uh, behind, it was behind closed doors so he could just hear the, yeah. the beating. I shouldn't be laughing about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of thing happened with Hart was that he saw... Uh, someone slapped this other undercover officer because he supposedly gave the name of G to a third-party person as a way to, like, scare Hart and being like, you don't tell people who's part of this and you follow our rules. Yeah, all I can imagine is just, like, all the undercover cops hold, like, trying to pull straws and whoever hits the shortest straw is the one that gets smacked. It's probably like, ah, shit, another day of the job. But yeah, like, even these couple examples demonstrate how real the threat of violence is to the suspects in these situations, which is scary to anybody, whether you're innocent or not. Um, so, have we, as we've noticed now, uh, there are some significant differences between custodial interrogations and interrogations for Mr. Big, which are considered non-custodial interrogations. Um... For example, you can't explicitly threaten someone in a custodial interrogation. That's not allowed. Um, and you also can't offer incentives to people to confess in a, in a real interrogation because both of these, as we know, can elicit a false confession. Um, there are a 
a few more differences I wanted to go into. Um, so in a standard interrogation, the suspect is aware that the interrogator is a person of authority, that the situation is clearly an interrogation, and the suspect is warned of their rights to silence and counsel. None of this happens in a Mr. Big interrogation, so they don't have a right to counsel, they don't really have a right to silence. Um, but in contrast, the Mr. Big interrogation, as I said, is given incentives to confess, can be threatened to elicit it, and they're also offered uh, legal leniency. Because as we know, Mr. Big says, oh, if you confess this to me, I'll make all your problems disappear. So that's what legal leniency is. Um, none of those things can happen in a custodial setting interrogation. Uh, and just to kind of clear those up a little bit, I am going to put a little table of these that makes it easier in our source photos. Yeah. So um, I just wanted to quickly add that with the heart um, trial, his lawyer tried to say that, oh, every confession that he gave while in the Mr. Big operation was inadmissible because of all of those things that you just mentioned, that he was afraid for his life. So he he lied about them, but it didn't work. The judge was like, no, because he said it by his own volition to this date, even though we don't have recordings of it. Yeah, it's really actually interesting you say that because I was going to talk now about the appeal that was made of the RV Hart case. Um, so in his case, there was an appeal made to the Supreme Court of Newfoundland and Labrador against the decision to exclude Mr. Big Evidence from his case. Um, this appeal led to a pretty lengthy voir dire being conducted, and this ultimately resulted in a new common law rule being introduced for assessing the use of Mr. Big evidence in future cases. So this new common law rule is something that now needs to be applied to all Mr. Big cases in Canada going forward, um, and it's two-pronged. So the first prong uh, is that there's now an assumption of inadmissibility of all of the evidence that's elicited through Mr. Big. Um, with the onus being on the crown to actually determine if the confession was reliable and that its probative value outweighs its prejudicial effect. Uh, what this basically means is that the probative value is the degree to which the evidence is able to prove facts of a case, uh, and the prejudicial effect is the degree to which the evidence may negatively affect the integrity and the fairness of the case for the suspect. So if it like infringes on their charter rights, that would be a prejudicial effect um so if the crown can prove that the probative value outweighs prejudicial effect and that it's reliable they can uh admit it into the court however then there's a second prong that has to be evaluated before this and this one is set on the onus of the defense and it's to determine if there was an abuse of process when eliciting this confession uh, so an abusive process, this essentially looks into the police conduct of the whole thing. So to what degree did the police use incentives and threats during the operation uh, to elicit this confession? During the voir dire, as you had just said, Journey, uh, Hart said that he made up the story of killing his daughters because he was frightened of what may happen to him if he didn't, uh, because he needed the money they were giving him and that he just didn't know any other way to get out of the situation he found himself in. In the past, this abusive process hasn't seemed to keep Mr. Big Evidence out of court, as we've seen and as we know it's been used over 350 times. Uh, but hopefully, now that there's a new common law rule thanks to Hart, 
it'll be taken more seriously into consideration when investigating um, the admissibility of these cases. So in the end, uh, Hart's confession to Mr. Big was actually ruled inadmissible because of the abuse of process, uh, and this was in the appeal, and as well as the fact that they didn't believe that the probative, the probative value outweighed its prejudicial effect. So they thought uh, it was infringing on his seventh charter right, um, and that just outweighed any probative value they could have gotten from the three confessions. I did not know that. Yeah, so I didn't for a while either, but I guess that's why we had the, uh, that's, so they appealed because, uh, the defense was like, no, it's not fair that you, you admitted these, um, and yeah, that the appeal, not the original trial case, is where the new case law came from. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's my little spiel on the Mr. Big Technique. Um, I find this topic really interesting, and I do really wish we had more empirical evidence on its efficacy. Um, but saying this, I still feel really lucky to have learned about it from the professors we have because they conduct so much research recently in this area. Uh, so one of the citations that will be listed on our website is a paper that our professors actually wrote, and it's called Using the Mr. Big Technique to Elicit Confessions, Successful Innovation, or Dangerous Development in the Canada Legal System, which if you're interested in learning more about the technique uh, and you don't mind reading a bit of scientific jargon, then this is an excellent read. Um, and if anyone has more questions or wants to discuss it more, we would love to, and you're welcome to email us or DM us to continue this conversation, because I'm sure as research continues, more evidence will come out on the effectiveness and the, uh, ethicality of it. I think <laughs> that's a word. <laughs> sure. We'll make it a word. Sure. I'm just going to say too. So Stinson, one of the authors of that paper amazing 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 researcher she's actually my thesis supervisor so um please go check it out i'm sure the other two are just as amazing um they know a crap ton about this stuff anyways our next topic we are all um probably too overexcited about this topic <laughs> could be concerning um but we we're calling it the cannibal special and we have three different cannibals to discuss with you all well more than three we're gonna maybe throw in some extra just sprinkle some spices on top of extra cases and i have a joke well i kind of a joke hopefully it's not bad <laughs> are you ready of course okay um so a lawyer asked the doctor doctor how many autopsies have you performed on dead people what do you think the doctor responded with? A lot. I I just don't know. <laughs> All my autopsies are performed on dead people. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. I wouldn't want them on living people. <laughs> that literally was just sitting right there. The punchline slapped us in the face and we were just like, no. Oh my god. Um trying to think about like how long the doctor could have been in his field. How many per year? Nope, they're all dead. Yeah. So That's fantastic. Don't worry. It went over my head when I read it too. 
So that is our joke of the episode. Um, Journey, where can people find us on social media? People can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at What the Forensics. Our Twitter is WT Forensics PC. Our website is whattheforensics.ca. And on our website, you can order our super fantastic stickers. And if you have any questions or concerns or anything, you can send us an email at whattheforensics at gmail.com. Um, just a little side note on our website. I don't think you noticed, Journey. Um, but someone in the group is a newly graduated university student. So <laughs> it's now two undergraduates and a graduated student. How exciting. So. Journey, you're just you're just improving our credibility. Credibility. Yes, that's <laughs> the word. Thank you. So <laughs> good. I didn't know you updated that. That's fantastic. Yeah. On our little bios, you're now a recently graduated SMU student rather than a fourth-year anthro student. I'm going to check it out right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, this has been another episode of What the Forensics. We hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time. Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just students who are learning and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and we can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm